Hi, this is Liz Gillies, CEO of the Menzies Foundation. Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum. I'm delighted to share this webinar, a conversation with Menzies Director Tony Surtees and his colleague Adam Salzer on the great reset and great reinvention required to navigate a COVID world. So much of what Tony and Adam discusses aligns with a catalytic approach that underpins the Menzies Foundation's work. This is a very galvanising insight. The webinar provides a great context in which to reimagine the pivot required to work in complexity and adaption as this new future becomes our reality. Okay, good morning all from Paul Jones. So if you hit in the panellists on the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see we've got David, Elizabeth, Jackie, Bernard, Paul, Paulo, and Tosh, uh, Toshimitsu. So we have in total around about 75 people. Margaret, I'm uh, one of the uh, committee members for the uh, Stanford Australia Association and uh, sort of have a special interest in the Entrepreneur Series. Uh, we'd like to thank Westpac for sponsoring the Entrepreneur Series. This is, uh, we've had that relationship with Westpac now for three years and the, the Stanford Entrepreneur Series has now been now in its 21st year. So something that started uh, quite, a, quite a long time before entrepreneurship was the latest thing in the Australian uh, economy. And now more than ever, this is so important for creating jobs in our country. So entrepreneurship happens right the way from small entities into large entities. And what we have today, we have, we have a great, uh, a very appropriate topic for where we are today. So the great reset and the great reinvention. Uh, and we have two great speakers uh, for, for this topic. Firstly, we have Tony Surtees. So Tony is on the uh, Stanford Australia Committee as well. And he has a, a career of entrepreneurship and supporting, now supporting uh, uh, many entrepreneurs in Australia. He's a, he's a hands-on investor. Now, I could read, your, read his uh, bio out, but you can read it there in the, in, in the invite that we sent. And he's now involved in, in uh, directly with, with startups and early stage companies, uh, but also with, with the federal government as well. And we're also very pleased to have uh, Adam Salsa here. Uh, Adam is is uh, one of the most uh, one of the world's most experienced professional drivers of fundamental transformation from mid-sized companies through to the very largest uh, enterprises, and we think we've got a great session today on the great reset and uh, the great reinvention. Just a bit of housekeeping before we before I hand over to Tony to kick things off. So a few things we we've booked an hour and a half in your diaries today. We expect uh, the presentation to take about an hour and. We have uh, the chat is live and the Q&A is live. So if you've got questions, please pop them in the Q&A or in the chat and then we'll, we'll address those uh, when we finish the presentation. I think that's about all. So over to you, Tony. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, thank you, Adam. And uh, uh, thank you, everybody, for attending. Yeah, the Entrepreneur Series, you should know, was uh, started 21 years ago as a program or a project to try and bring the best of breed lessons uh, and developments and techniques out of Stanford and out of the US to Australia and try and create greater depth and greater understanding of the enterprise creation process. Something that uh, for those of you who've been to Stanford, especially the business school at Stanford, will know that um, it remains a, a core principle around the Stanford ethic and the Stanford objective to uh, change the world and to change the world positively. We've all witnessed now some changes in our world, not all of them positive. And uh, today we're gonna to have a, an opportunity to review 
what these particular changes have wrought upon us collectively, and with, an, with a, one particular perspective, which being, you know, whether or not some of these changes might actually have a positive impact. As Daniel was saying, certainly the, uh, we'd like to thank Westpac as our corporate sponsor for this series of discussions. And we want to talk uh, about uh, what we've all gone through, uh, what we're all going through. And uh, around about six months ago, uh, my personal experience was as a person who was directly involved in a number of early stage businesses, and I'm also involved with the federal government uh, with a program which provides grant funding for uh, the acceleration of commercialization of early stage businesses. We saw a lot of things that were going on, which were on one hand quite exciting, and on the other hand quite scary. So I decided to start to pull together a description of what these various changes were to understand. And this is the summary of, of what it is that I think we've seen. So fundamentally, think of what's happened is an accelerator. We've taken, or the world has now seen the changes that were already happening have now actually sped up. And in summary, we'll walk through the following points, which I'll explain. So COVID is not just an emergency. It's actually forced a change on consumers, on businesses, on institutions, on societies, on the way that we live, the way that we organize ourselves. And the effect of that is to effectively obliterate resistance to change in a whole lot of different areas. Part of this has had an effect to change the way many consumers think about their lives and, and change the patterns of their consumption. Some of these changes are permanent. Uh, some of them are temporary. And uh, in trying to make decisions about uh, how we invest or how we manage or how we lead going forward, we need to recontextualize all these changes because the changes have actually forged, forced a divergence of futures for various different institutions. And so there are new states of future uh, which affect various different organizations. And we'll take a look at that because it's important to try to help make sense of the various different types of opportunities that um, our traditional businesses and institutions. And uh, another takeaway is that fundamentally a uh, need to try to provide greater levels of trust and transparency to consumers everywhere for just about everything. So is this what we will remember from 2020? Is the popular game of conference called bingo now proving to be, you know, uh, you know, the surprise hit of 2020? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we'll remember this year for other things, of course. But one of the uh, things that occurred this year is that we were obviously in the first instance responding to an emergency, a pandemic need. But we were doing that in the context of technologies which had been changing and changing exponentially over the last 20 to 30 years. When we think about exponential change, it's very, very hard to visualize. But this is a, you know, just a little set of visualizations around what, uh, what memory looked like going back to 1959 up to 2017. Uh, and see just how much visually, uh, how much uh, the, the 
storage of memory looked like and how the cost has collapsed and how you know these exponential changes have affected us in terms of our productive capabilities. When storage becomes very cheap, it opens up the opportunity to do many more things. And it's not just storage. It's bandwidth, it's processing cost, it's the cost of sensors, uh, the fact that mobile and Wi-Fi have become as ubiquitous as electricity, and the Internet of Things revolution, where datafication of all sorts of behaviours and all sorts of operations uh, effectively become commonplace. The other thing in terms of exponential change in technology is the fact that big breakthroughs occur when technologies feed off each other. It's not the one big breakthrough. It's when these different breakthroughs occur and the pace of change increases. And we're seeing with AI, data convergence, cloud, and various other sorts of technologies combining together in ways which really drive progress in an in a, uh, exponential way. And one last comment, when we think about the difference between linear and exponential, if we were to take 30 linear steps, we'll take a, a trend and we'd have a, a trip of about 30 meters. If we were to take 30 exponential st steps, we'd have traveled around the world 25 times. So that just shows the power and the change, the order of magnitude difference between linear progress and exponential progress. So I would argue that technology and the pace of technology moving in exponential ways basically has created opportunities for us. So let's go and have a look at what has actually occurred in the last couple of months, not just as an emergency, but as an accelerator. So broadly speaking, we have seen technology advance in weeks instead of years because of COVID. Microsoft has seen two years worth of digital transformation in just two months. The guys at Atlassian have made equally powerful uh, reports in terms of where they see their industry. Between Scott and Mike, their business, uh, Atlassian, has had tremendous growth, uh, which really falls into that sort of exponential description. The stereotypic, almost the iconic business of today, Zoom, we all are and have now become far more experienced in interacting with each other on Zoom. And it's gone from, in terms of users, from 8 million daily users in December 2019, not even 12 months ago, to an estimated 300 million today. And first-time installations of Zoom's mobile application uh, has got grown 700 plus percent since March this year. So when we look in aggregate at what changes we've seen across the board, some of these changes are uneven, but they're staggering. And so if you can see the way in which our lives have changed, we see that the opportunities that have arisen out of this are creating opportunities for many new businesses new, very, and many new practices to be established. And if you're the sort of business that is built to take the sort of massive tailwind that this increase in demand has caused, it will make you accelerate. If you're not built to take it, unfortunately, you're going to get knocked over in the wind. This is the Australian Formula racing boat, which was uh, out on Sydney Harbour uh, this time last year. And uh, these particular boats are designed for speed. 
and for safety and for the ability to be able to navigate in very aggressive angles with very little notice. So this particular conveyance, this boat, was designed to take the amount of wind that it could throw, uh, that could be thrown at it and take advantage of it. And increasingly, we need to think about our businesses operating the same sort of way. So consumers have changed and our, cha- our behaviours are reshaping the way in which we make decisions about the sort of things that we're interested in. But what happened? Why have consumers changed? Well, we'll walk down the path together. So consumers and businesses, typically, many of them, have a normal resistance to change. If something's not broken, why should I change it? And in a pre-COVID world, resistance to change was always the enemy of the entrepreneur and the innovator. But because of lockdown, many traditional ways of doing business simply became unavailable. And so we were forced to search for substitutes to try to achieve, with the restrictions that we had, with the lockdowns, different ways of actually getting things done. So we started to search for substitutes. So the inertia to change collapsed as people began to implement those substitutes, merely as a survival technique, if nothing else. And so we then found with the experimentation of those substitutes that indeed a lot of these alternatives were much better. The workarounds proved more effective. They were better, cheaper, faster. Productivity rises. And we readjust our habits and we readjust our behaviours. So some of the changes we've discovered have led to better outcomes and those ones will be permanent. The interesting thing is our psychology as a community because as we've been locked up in our homes, uh, we've actually been commuting less. We've been spending less time and in many cases no time at all in the office. And so there's a... A change in the way we've decided to evaluate our personal values. So to a large extent, there's been a refocus on the home. Now, the first stage of the pandemic, we had emergency responses. How are we going to survive? We all remember with great fondness the toilet paper rush that uh, occurred. And uh, it wasn't so much that there was an explosion of medical conditions requiring a vastly increased amount of toilet paper. It's that the distribution systems that were always used to handling volumes going to offices and workplaces needed to get reallocated so they could actually be provided to consumers. So we started to improvise. And then we actually saw that with stores being closed and lockdowns being imposed, that instead of you going to the store, the store would come to you. And that was really an explosion of e-commerce. Given the fact that we've now had more time at home, we were able to start to think about, well, how do we outfit our home to work as an office? And how, what do we use the additional time that we now have available that we're not spending on public transport or commuting? And so things like investments in various different health uh, and exercise equipment and home-based health programs, that became quite important, as was an investment in buying new furniture. There was uh, home improvements became such a uh, powerful driver. In fact, I think Harvey Norman has had their most successful quarter ever in terms of sales of furniture and electronics. 
But the other thing is that uh, we, after we've you know, built up our bodies and decorated our homes, we started to reflect on what new talents and interests and priorities we would actually have. So we started to think about investing in uh, how to make ourselves be more the sort of person that we wanted to if we ever had that thing called more time. Because notwithstanding having the demands at home of children and parents and various other demands, we actually found that we had a greater degree of autonomy in many cases over the time that we spent. So there's this divergence of consumer experience. And the interesting thing is some of the, some of the results out of this have proven quite surprising. So two-thirds of Australians believe that this was to use an adaptation of the, uh, of the recession that we had to have from Paul Keating. This was the reset that we needed to have. And it was very much on the basis of reevaluating how we were personally living. About a third of Australians feel different about what they want out of life. And 60%, thereabouts, 58%, said they want to have a simpler life when the pandemic is over. So the question of what ends up being normal and what the return to normal is may be quite different. Then again, about half uh, of those people tested uh, and surveyed found that they didn't want COVID to change the way they live. And about a quarter of people were not concerned about COVID and just wanted to get back to whatever it was. So there's this real diversity, this real divergence between how different consumers uh, at least as examined in this particular piece of research, started to reflect upon the changes that have been uh, affecting their lives. So some changes look as if they're going to become permanent. So here were three separate pieces of research that were undertaken in the UK uh, in June and July of this year. And it addressed the question about whether or not we wanted to go back to normal whatever normal was. And overwhelmingly, the answer is no. Now, we don't know exactly what it is that the people interviewed think that uh, normal was or uh, the same type of economy that we had before actually represented them. But it does go to show you that this, what the working assumption that everybody simply wants to put COVID behind them and then go back to a pre-COVID environment. That's an unsound assumption to make if you happen to be a leader or an entrepreneur or someone in government. So there's been a fundamental shift in values and ideas. We talked before about how technology brings new opportunity to people once they actually try start trialing it. Telemedicine as a technology is not necessarily a new technology. The, the capability, the communications capability and the management capabilities that telemedicine uh, could apply, have been around for quite a while. However, there was massive resistance out of the medical community and medical practitioners to actually change the way in which their practices ran. But when COVID simply prevented uh, these normal ways of doing business from continuing, the technology capabilities uh, of telemedicine started to become not only accessible, but very desirable. Now you can see here one piece of data from April that uh, in the US alone, doctors are seeing many multiples 
of the number of uh, patients that they see using telemedicine as a um, as a productivity tool and communications tool. And uh, that same sort of change, if any of us have been to a doctor in the last few months, you will have found that you go through a very different type of process to actually make your appointment and then to attend to it. As we talked about before, self-improvement in one form, shape or another has been a boom industry in this last few months with a 50% growth in the sale of exercise programs, exercise machines and various other types of exercise and health support infrastructure. And we now find, quite astonishingly, that there's this explosion of people working from home. It's not a surprise probably to any of us because we're all probably doing it. But if you think about this in aggregate, what it changes and how people actually manage their lives, it starts to show you just exactly what are the key, you know, what the underlying driver uh, has, uh, has made changes to the way in which our lives are organized. The work from home opportunity or work from home requirement has basically meant that organizations like Canva can introduce new products and new ideas. And this is, a, this is something I'm particularly close to because in my previous startup, we actually created a technology which Canva bought and introduced, uh, and that's the basis of this new type of technology which they've introduced, which enables people to do collaboration on simultaneous uh, and time-shifted presentations. So waiting for the right time to actually introduce this brainstorming feature was something that worked very well for, for Cliff and Melanie, and this has proven to be quite a, quite a hit product. So working from home has proven, for, mo for the most part, and especially in the technology industry, quite a significant positive development. And here's a statement by Google, who are actually saying, look, they're very happy with the way their teams have, have uh, been using their time and have, product, and have used their time productively. Uh, so there's a very high level of satisfaction around the way that this type of change has occurred. Uh, and of course, it's had big impacts as well in terms of our consumption of carbon-based fuels, uh, the amount of traffic which is on roads. So there's a, there's a lot of changes that are happening that which now need to be brought into thinking about how we organize our lives, how our values have changed, and how our cities are organized. So let's think briefly about what I'm referring to as these new states of future. If you're an investor and you're trying to think through which of the businesses that I'm currently looking at are likely to actually have their opportunities accelerated or diminished by COVID, uh, this is a, a really useful model, which I found from um, 500 startups. And this is a, uh, a way to think through four different classifications of impact and duration. So we can actually start to think about the businesses that we're looking at and think of them in this, this particular context. For those businesses that we think are on pause, we think it's a short-term thing and that as a result of second-order effects from sheltering in place or constrained demand, they're likely to revert back to pre-COVID-19 levels uh, once the restrictions have been lifted. And so the entertainment industry to a certain extent, elective surgeries, uh, local travel, uh, movies, various other sorts of things that we think have more than likely the prospect of returning to a level of activity 
uh, once the lockdown and the concerns around distancing have been removed. If we look at what is the quote-unquote new normal, so the new normal, basically we think, if we look at those businesses that were already experiencing headwinds from the sort of technology-driven change, but where COVID has actually accelerated that change, we think that retail, travel, hospitality, the food and beverage business really need to rethink what their value propositions in terms of how consumers actually wanted to consume or participate or buy the services and products that came out of there. And so this is one of the areas where if you had any one of the, any businesses sort of falls into this area that were experiencing some sort of growth challenges going into the, into the COVID crisis, then the need is going to be that much more exaggerated. If we look at what some of these businesses are that really now have an accelerated future, it's those businesses that were introducing a potential change of behavior that were, resi- that were encountering, to a certain extent, uh, some sort of resistance to change. And now having been proven and been trialed and been tested, the satisfaction, the level of satisfaction of the alternative has now been proven to be so much better than the thing it replaced. And so the statistics that we touched on before really shows that there are, you know, real dramatic permanent changes. It's the the experience of these industries basically now going to a new higher base level and accelerating from there. Uh, and so the numbers that we... Uh, we touched on before, effectively did provide the opportunity to think very constructively around where growth opportunities will come from. And those growth opportunities will be larger than they were before. This last point in terms of scanning for entry really comes down to a business which I'm very close to, where we've all now been trained that before we enter a a restaurant or any sort of public area, that we use the QR code and we scan that as a, as a means by which we obtain that entry for contact tracing. So from our particular point of view, uh, this sort of scanning behavior in order to provide some sort of access or some sort of protection really provides an underpinning for our product that we are currently involved in developing. So it's, uh, it's made the growth of that product so much easier. So one of the last takeaways that I wanted to suggest was trust uh, in this sort of environment. When uh, each, as, each of us as consumers start to examine the thing that we most are dependent upon, we're dealing with people that perhaps we haven't dealt with before, or we're dealing with brands that we've dealt with before, but we're now more dependent upon them in terms of delivering the value proposition. And so we think that one of the key things that we need to ensure is that with whatever we do, we become very focused on risk management and making sure that products and services that we provide consumers are exactly what they purport to be. And we don't let consumers down because trust, we think, is going to end up being one of the most powerful and most permanent characteristics of the brands and the businesses that we support. So out of all of this disaster, we think that there's an opportunity. And I've touched on that before. One of the key opportunities for us as leaders and as managers is how do we actually help and transform these businesses in order to reinvent, redevelop, and transform themselves. And for that, I'd like to turn to Adam Salter, where he'll talk about the great reinvention. Thank you, Tony. Much appreciated. So I'm approaching this a bit sort of if Tony's, you know, yang, I'm ying, the other side of the, uh, the coin. 
So we are living in a different time, and what I wanted to share today is what we do about it in our organizations. When we leave here, we go out, um, we understand the world has changed from where Tony has taken us, and we already know it in our, in our guts. And now what do we do about it? So this is, if Tony's the architect, I'm the, uh, the builder or the plumber. So let's work out what we're going to do. So first of all, things are changing. And we can't stop our trajectory we're on, but we have to fix the engine while, we're, while the plane is in the air. And this is what I'm calling the great reinvention. So as it goes forward, we know that it has to be different in the future. How do we get it there? Uh, can you do the next one, Tony? So what we're finding, and I'm working around the world at the moment with various organizations that are going through transformation, this organization from small to medium to very, very large. Every single CEO, uh, when they report to their board, they're talking about their reinvention or their transformation. So everyone is doing it. But next, if you don't do it, you're going to be left behind. So really, there's no alternative but to stand up and say, this organization that I'm working with needs to reinvent itself. And uh, what I'm going to do is help you through how do you uh, reduce the likelihood of uh, failure in these very unconventional times. Your organization, every single one of you here today, your organizations are being impacted. You, we had the life that was going on before COVID, and then bang, the world has changed. But it's not just COVID. There are other reasons. We have the accelerated technology dis digital disruption that was changing the world before that's now significantly accelerated, as Tony was pointing out. The pandemic uncertainty continues way beyond what we expected. It's getting deeper, it's getting further, and the environment we work in is constantly changing. Most uh, uh, leaders are able to see two or three weeks in advance. Uh, beyond that, it starts to get grey. We've also got some of the other things that are happening. So we've got sovereign capabilities now, what this is, is the shock in governments of losing supply chain to other countries. So what are the capabilities we need to build in-country? Pharmaceuticals, uh, toilet paper, uh, defence, rebuild uh, what is in Australia, what is needed in Australia to go forward, as well as rebuilding our supply chains. The other big one that Tony was mentioning in particular is customer changing very, very fast and new business models emerging. So, what do we have to do? First of all, we've got to do two things. So just go back one, please, Tony. We've got to do two things. One is we actually need to make sure that we survive. So while we're reinventing the organization, you have to keep making sure that the, the daily business as usual continues and prospers with the new technology. But there's no point in doing it unless you can see where you're going. So a lot of the work that we're seeing is there are leaders that are going, let's just rebuild our business. And there are other ones saying, let's make sure our business survives, but let's use this opportunity to create a different future. And when you start creating a different future, you can also find ways of releasing cash to fund that different future. But that's the short term. And then the long term is you need to create an organization that addresses social and customer needs. Gone are the days of creating organizations to make money. What we've found through all the companies that have gone through successful growth, successful transformation, is they've locked into a social need or a customer need. And if you don't have that, it's just not going to work. So 
the making profits is a byproduct, not a, a causal factor. So as I said, everybody is doing transformation. So what we've got is different statements that, you know, you know to stand still, still today is not an option from CEO magazine. 50%, uh, 60% of companies launching a comprehensive uh, transformation program going to do it after this severe area. So all the companies are going through this significant rebuild. And the last one, which I thought was quite nice, actually comes from Justin Trudeau, but from Strategy And. The pace of ne- has never been this fast, yet it will never be this slow. So we think it's fast now that we're going through. We haven't even begun to see the speed it's going to go in the future. So we're talking about everyone doing transformation. The only problem is, is that actually only 26% of transformations succeed. This comes from McKinsey. So the total average is 26%, which is very low. So there's, I want to explore with you today, how do we change that 26% to 90%? In fact, that 26%, attorney, if you can, of that 26%, it looks like that failure rate may even be increasing. So we have this uh, huge opportunity that uh, Tony was talking about. We have to change our companies, but for some reason, there's a lot of failure. So let's talk about how to make your uh, organization a success. I'm going to cover a few points. First of all, actually, what is transformation? Because it's a word that has been used by everybody these days. And then what is, what is, how can you become a transformative leader? How do you coordinate a vision for the future and then build internal capabilities? And then finally, give you some ideas about moving from the 26% to 90% success rate. But the core to it all is that it's up to you to decide you want to do it. What we're finding is very interesting is everywhere, it's leading obvious that companies have got to go through this um, significant rebuild, and it's finding the individual that says, yes, let's do it. And there's different sorts of leaders, the ones that are going, let's rebuild our company from the past, or let's use this opportunity to create something very, very different. And what we're finding, just as a quick finding area there, is that the legacy companies, the big legacy companies, are fundamentally not reinventing themselves. They're just trying to rebuild themselves. But this is the opportunity for companies that are in tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, to leapfrog up and take the lead. And for that reason, it's really very fascinating times. So the elephant in the room, when we look at transformation, is that actually nobody knows how to do it. Boards don't know how to transform. The C-suite doesn't know how to transform. The strategic consultants from the KPMGs or the, um, uh, the, the strategic houses actually don't know how to do it. And the tech providers, the Accentures of the world, also don't know how to do it. So it's a tough, tough environment. But what we do know right now in the middle of this uh, sort of global transformation that's happening, that has been happening for many years and is now being accelerated, is in the past, the big fish ate the small fish. Where we're going now is the, is the fast fish eat the slow fish. And the need to be, the biggest issue is get going and get going at speed. So it's uh, time to move on. So I'm just going to just quickly tell you, with all the noise, everyone's talking about transformation. We've got to transform. We are transforming. We're doing it. But a lot of them are doing things that are not transformational, such as an HR change management program focusing on agile, lean, new culture, new ways of working is not a transformation. It's a change in the way of working. 
when you add a digital layer or digital channels to the way you're working, doesn't mean you're transforming your company. It means you're adding digital layers. Squeezing companies to get more efficiency out using new technology um, without a vision for the future is not transformational, which is what a lot of organizations are doing. And finally, innovation theater is not transformational. Building a corporate uh, accelerator, doing innovation labs, running hackathons, all those things are fine, but they are not yet transforming the organization. They're the beginnings of, they're glimpses of, but that is not what transformation is. So what is transformation? Transformation is dot, 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 a significant, lasting, non-reversible change in your company's business or operating model. It is doing your entire value creation is different to what you were before. Now, this has to be created, as I said before, while maintaining your, your business as usual to reinvent yourself at speed. And that's the opportunity going forward. So it does require people to go, okay, let's make the choice. Let's get moving. And it's the let's get moving that's the most difficult part. So I'm going to talk to you about how to do successful transformation. First issue is we, there are two different types of leaders in organizations. You've got an operational leader, and you'll all know them. They're people that focus on the 1%, 2%, 3%, 5%, 2%. They're the incremental evolutionary leaders, and they are the majority, maybe you know, 80, 80, 90% of the leaders that are around us. Then you have transformative leaders, and a transformative leader is a lot of the people that are here today. They're people that are entrepreneurs. They're people that are large change drivers in organizations where if you're not doing a 30% change, it's not happening. So these, so let me stay on this for a minute. If you are a transformational leader and your boss is an operational leader, your transformation will fail because the boss will try and take your 30% change and cut it into... 31% changes, and by the time you fiddle all the 1%, you'll never get there. So do look at yourselves and look around and work out how do you have, you know, it's the transformative leaders that are needed. So in the illustration here, the white water and the white water uh, in uh, my company name uh, was actually given to us by the uh, uh, lady Anna Mayong that's the, works, runs Walmart's global e-commerce section. And she was describing her life as a whitewater transformation. Whitewater is your normal business. Just surviving, getting down the river, not turning over, that is your life. But a whitewater transformation is having somebody in that boat that is starting, that knows that river, that starts to, within that trip, starts to build a different future. And these are what we call breakthrough managers or transformational leaders as we go forward. So first of all, as a leader, if you're going to be a transformational leader, you need to be a leader whom others want to follow. No longer is it hierarchical driven in this new consensus world we live in. You have to be able to be able to communicate and allow people to follow you on this very major journey of transformation. Now, as you go down this and you say, this is the way we're going and you co-create with people and take it forward, you need to remember that actually course corrections are going to be required as you go forward. So again, imagine being on the boat, you're going down the river, you've got to get there before other people while delivering your daily work and then help the company reinvent itself and change course as you go down. Not easy. So 
Be a transformational leader is the first lesson. Second one, co-create a vision of the future. Focus on co-create and a vision of the future. So let me just explain this. There's a Chinese expression that says um, a joint venture is one bed, two dreams, where you've got totally different dreams, but you've got the same strategy. What we find when we go into organizations every time is you've got one bed, one strategy, and many dreams, 20, 30 different dreams of the future. And very difficult to create at that when everybody is trying to create something differently. So the first one is bringing people together and thinking through, and there's some various exercises and things you can do to get people to actually see and share what you're creating. This is your senior strategic leadership team. Now, there's a key there because actually nobody knows the future. So you've got to head towards the future with your foot on the accelerator into a future that's called an unknown, unknown future. What I mean by that is a future with unknown technology and unknown business models. So you have to go, you have to go fast, you have to agree where you're going, and then you've got this constant adjustment as you go forward, but you have to travel at speed. Remember the little fishies? If you're not fast, you're going to get eaten. Now, finally, when you're creating a vision of the future, one is that you are making sure that you are locked into consumer and society needs, as we discussed. But the interesting side is that where we're finding real transformation, companies that are emerging that are going to be leaders of the future, they are companies that have broken down silos. They've broken down silos internally. No longer do you have your hierarchy, that there's a hierarchy between the CEO and the, the security guard. Um, that is, And with technology these days, you can get rid of that but also breaking down um, silos between functions, between sales, manufacturing, finance, all those things, breaking them down, because it's that, it's that joining together that you get your breakthrough ideas. And finally, the future is an environment where you're breaking down the silos between you and your external partners, between you and your customers, between you and your suppliers. Uh, a, a quick example there is the legal industry now. A lot of the technology is coming out of the, out of the legal practices and being put into clients to actually run their own legal issues. How do you manage that uh, very different area where there are no longer silos? How do you cooperate? So this vision's got to be created because the vision is what you have to realize. So you've got to get your vision clear. Then go to the next one, please. Then you've got to actually get it implemented. And it is the implementation that is driving this. So in this little uh, cartoon, it's, I hate to say it, it's every day we see it. You've got the board, this is where we want to go. You've got the frontline workers going, gosh, we want things to be different. And then something gets lost in the middle, in middle management or the permafrost or whatever. And it just stops. Somehow nobody understands how to do the going from strategy to implementation at speed. And again, you're going to have to do it at speed. If you're not fast, you're going to be left behind. So transformation occurs through implementation. Yes, you've got to have the strategy, which we talked about, but then its success is based on the implementation. Now here, we believe you don't use lots of externals. You use your own internal people, and you preferably use your own internal high potentials. 
They are there working with the strategy. They're doing the implementation. They're the plumbers, but they're building their own company of the future. And then you start to get this genuine excitement pumping through an organization and speed. So by splitting strategic and implementation ownership, but ownership is the driver, then suddenly you can start to get the, the visioning going through the organization. Let me take these one at a time. So this is how to move from 26% to plus 90%. There's some sort of just bits of wisdom here I'm sharing you, so bear with me because it really is like the picture at the bottom there is, you know, how do you take a, you know, find a diamond in a lump of coal? So first one is when you're co-creating the vision, create a big vision because the bigger the vision, the easier it is to implement. This is counterintuitive, but it is the key going forward. Next one is the whole area of risk needs to be rethought. In the past, boards were avoiding risk. In the past, failure was bad. You can't do that anymore. It's a new world. We have to live with and manage risk entirely differently. So I'll give you a very clear example here. Look at the boards of our biggest companies, CBA, Telstra, etc. Then look at the boards of a private equity-backed organization, both obeying the rules of, of boards, one absolutely avoiding risk, and the other one realizing they're there to put their foot on the accelerator and manage the very rapid growth. It's the difference. So it's how to live with risk differently. Now, Tony was uh, reminding me the, uh, the government is now moving to have uh, Chapter 11 concepts for smaller companies, which allow us to manage risk ourselves better. It's the beginning of uh, the idea that especially smaller organizations are going to fail. And we need to make, allow that so that we, don't, uh, we can manage that process because that is how we're going to grow. One of the key areas is every company, when you go back in its history, or if you're in a new company, go back into the history of the people that are inside your company, they've had failures. Now, failures are good. Repetitious failures are not good. And what you find is, especially in the transformational world, just about every medium to large organization has tried to transform and has failed. And this is where we at Whitewater use a, a technique called conditions for success. You know, you, f- you actually pull out why have you failed. Let's look at that. What can we do to ensure that it doesn't take us down that road again? Um, now, that could be individuals, that there are some individuals that just don't get it, that um, don't support what you're doing. It could be resourcing. Many reasons why there are embedded failures that you need to bring out and put on the table. And finally, in this world that we live in, there needs to be full transparency between the CEO and the front line. It is now possible to have two-way transparency. So what we find is that the strategic area the, um, in the boardroom, people visioning a future, and then you've got people on the front line that actually know what's going on, and they need to work together openly and honestly, where yeah, the front line is opening, is asking very open, very direct questions, and they're being answered, and vice versa. Um, and once you get this in place, again, it coordinates the company so that you can start making these bigger uh, changes going forward. So to be a transform- transformative catalyst. So what I'm saying is, please 
realize that everything Tony told us was that we now have to apply this to the companies we work with. So everyone wants runway, it's a disaster, it's chaos, what are we going to do? We need to run towards it and work out what, remembering, we don't know what to do, but we know that some, it needs leadership and direction. The world is, work, is operating at a very accelerated pace. Now, government, society, and organizations are responding. Everyone is trying to work out how to manage this. And it's the responsibility of you as leaders to lead in these complex times, to lead people to find a vision, a co-created vision, and then to start to implement it. So in summary, please grasp the opportunity. The biggest risk is not taking the risk. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. So right, got some uh, got some questions here already. So um, uh, maybe we should just uh, go through those. But that that, that was very informative, uh, Adam and and Tony. I got to say, someone someone who's taking a fair bit of risk and feeling uh, feeling like we're living in white water all the time. You know, that's uh, uh, I thought it was a, ve- a, a, a very good presentation. So, Tony, you just want to start? Should we just go through the uh, the, the, the Q and A that are there in the uh, uh, in, in the Q and A section? You can read those uh, as well. Do you want to start with David's David's question? Yeah. So the question is: uh, Given the use of the internet has accelerated COVID times, uh, has has accelerated in this time. Looking at the possibility of reoccurrence of a similar situation, is this a good time to rethink what is broken on the internet and launch new product to replace or vent? internet, read the information for energy use and how information is produced, transmitted and consumed. Uh, I think I think the answer is yes, but I'd like to sort of frame the answer in something which has happened, which doesn't directly affect the internet per se. I think that all of us and governments in particular have discovered just how far they can push things and how quickly they can respond and make major changes. So uh, the you know, governments have reacted and put programs in and committed financial resources in ways that were previously thought impossible to do simply because of the extent of the, of the danger in not responding quickly enough or large enough. So in far, insofar as energy is concerned, we have a much larger crisis sitting on the doorstep and that happens to be in climate change and happens to be in areas as it relates to restructuring our economies especially in Australia, as far as energy production is concerned. So I would have thought that all sorts of organisations everywhere are now enthused uh, or had their horizons redefined to a certain extent of just how far one may need to go in order to properly address an issue or accommodate a change. So, uh, David, in response to your question, is now the time to do it? I think the answer would be you'll never have a more opportune moment to actually start getting a receptive audience in areas where you're going to try to promote something or challenge a pre-existing set of ideas about what can be done. Can, can I just quickly add to that, uh, just take that last statement of Tony's. I've never seen such an open time as we have now. Actually, if you can think it, you can do it. So it is a truly open time to go out there courageously there is money to back you. There is uh, the ability to go in there. There's a slowness that's in the um, legacy companies that's leaving opportunity. So, but it's up to, again, somebody saying, I'm going to do it. And once you've got that, 
the rest of it starts to flow. And that's the, that's the difficult part, is making that first step. So uh, we've got another question now from Dale. The question is, do you think the trust is mostly created by human connection, by people recognising and relating to key people? There's a very famous statement that was made by Ronald Reagan during the time of the Cold War in response to his, uh, a question that was posed to him as, do you trust the Soviet Union? And his answer was, trust but verify. So actually, the short answer is, is that trust and reputation are very closely connected to each other. And it takes many, many years to develop a positive reputation, and it takes seconds to lose it. So you need to have the systems in place that enable you to be able to establish and support trust uh, and to be able to support the goodwill that people, the trust they have in you. <clears throat> and you need to be able to remediate and quickly move uh, if, in fact, uh, you've um, found something may endanger that trust. Uh, you know, we had uh, a presentation uh, recently uh, where we were talking about managing in crisis. Uh, and uh, I think the, you know, there are, there are key strategies when you want to manage a, the transformation of a company uh, through a crisis and being open and transparent and honest is an important element of that. So this concept of trust by verify is actually one of the underpinnings behind the technology uh, which I have co-founded in terms of being enabling any document or any, any physical thing to be verified or to be authenticated at speed at very, very low cost in a, in a universal way. So I think uh, trust will be rewarded now higher than ever before, and it's never been more important, but it ultimately comes down to the actions that people take, not just the words they say. So uh, there's a question also for Adam. Uh, can an operational leader become a transformative leader? This is controversial, so bear with me. No. And I have had significant discussions with the Australian Public Service Board, with their SES, which is their top level of, of uh, government, bureaucrats, is they've all been trained and been brought up as operational leaders. That's how you go up in the public service. And it's very difficult then to turn around. And they're, doing, they're saying, can we train them to be transformational leaders? The answer is no. What we may be able to, the maximum you can do, is to allow them to stand back and let transformation leaders have their head. But they can't ever do it. There's a white paper that we released from the Australian Transformation Turnaround Association, which talked about what are the best practices of, of boards. And what we found there was that if you want to be a transformative board, you had to have a chair and a CEO that were both transformational. If you didn't have that in place, your transformation would never work. Now, wait, I've just dismissed every bank, every retailer. Uh, you know, think it through. This is a tough one. So what it is is that I do believe very passionately that um, people understand they want to do it. Operational leaders want the transformation. They know they have to do it. Their jobs depend on it. But they still start reducing it. So... What we have done in that situation where there is uh, an operational leader is to go into a subsection that is owned by a transformational leader to prove up a model and then start to work it across the organization. But I've yet to find somebody that can reinvent themselves in reality. A lot of them put on the clothes, but their behaviors don't change. So sorry, Dale, the answer is no. And so, uh, Daniel, can you see the questions or? Uh, yeah, I, I can see the question. I, I... 
I, I just love, just love that Adam's uh, Adam definite definite answer. It's uh, it's quite depressing, really. Uh, let me think about it. Uh, no. <laughs> so the next question uh, is for you as well, Adam. Uh, you mentioned that some companies are more successful than others in transforming their organisation. What is the measure used to work out the, the success rate of transformation? All transformation steps easy to measure, visualise. So the answer is you have to measure what you you know you 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 have to measure everything, and it has to be measured independently of the transformational team. So normally what I would do is set up the CFO or somebody like that with a team that internally audits what you're doing because transformation is not something that you know just comes and goes. It's a long-term journey. And then within that, when you're visioning your future, you then go, how do we measure when we've arrived? What is it going to look like? And you start having your milestones all the way through. This is the strategic design part. Then... Milestones don't mean anything when you get into your daily life inside an organization. So once you get inside the daily life, the high potentials, the program teams, etc., when you get into that situation, uh, that gets then turned into activities. What activities do we need to achieve the milestone? Because those activities can play, take place 18 months, two years earlier to make sure you hit a milestone. And that's what's understood inside the organization. So the answer is, is you measure the milestones, and you, but, but you focus on the activities, not the milestones. And it has to be there. You have to be able to measure and report independently. And the board that should be uh, behind this uh, should get a monthly report that comes through that actually shows what is working, what's not. And we've got a little thing that we add, which is a bit of um, artificial intelligence, which gives the board additional feedback, are you traveling the right direction? And much more importantly, are you traveling fast enough? And they hate us. <laughs> but, but it has to be on the table. It's a speed is what this is about. And, and that's where you get your speed risk issues. Does that answer you, David or Dale? That, that's good. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so the next, one's, the next one's from Sam, which is an interesting challenge for all of us at the moment is, how can we manage new hires with respect to corporate culture as as we all work from home? So we, we, we have this challenge. We've just employed we've just employed five more people in the UK who are all working from home, and I'm sitting here in Sydney from the same company. It's a it's it's a huge challenge of how you how you generate corporate culture. Probably probably for both of you to talk to. It's great, it's great this remote. I mean, I pulled a board together in Europe. And we've been working as a very strong, very innovative board, and we've never met each other. So, you know, it, it, once you make the jump into the openness of working remotely, it's fine. I mean, you know, you've still got to obviously have, you know, the clear uh, levels of, of what you expect people to achieve. But I don't think the uh, remoteness has any issue there at all. If you don't have a culture, and you don't have a belief, then I think it get, does become chaotic. But people, you know, as long as you establish clearly, look, this is who we are, this is how we are, and you live it, people absorb into your culture very quickly. Tony, what's your thoughts? I think the uh, one of the things that culture emerges out of is not just the personal face-to-face -face relationship, but the common experiences that you have. And keeping in mind that just as it's difficult for us to manage people remotely, it's hard to be managed remotely. And so under the circumstances, the more that you can do to actually share that common frustration and the common challenges, 
the more likely you are to actually build a different type of bridge and a different type of common and shared experience. And so uh, I think that uh, uh, it, it calls for some creativity in terms of how to do it and to explore, you know, the extent to which the tools can facilitate it. Thank you. Uh, from Elizabeth, we have a question. Uh, from a systems perspective, how do you galvanise the silos to pivot to a transformation orientation, as in social change movements beyond any one organisation? Again, it's somebody makes the decision to do it. So, uh, again, give you an example. Um, I sold my business into PwC in Asia, and then I went to the managing partner and said, I'm ashamed to have anything to do with this organization. And the reason being was the behaviors were so terrible within that environment. And he, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you, you decide it wants to be fixed. If Once you decide it wants to be fixed, we can fix it. And he made the decision, and it was whatever it was, 10,000 people. And we were able to break what, what had been a habitual bad practice within the organization, but it required one person to decide that it's time to stop it. So, you know, it is that you can definitely break down silos if you decide you want to do it. There's too many organizations where siloing has become a, a management technique. Uh, you just need to step past that. Um, there are solutions available. And in, in social change and outside one organization, just to answer you there, Elizabeth, is that... Um, Social change is developing, is becoming more significant as we go forward, and it is permeating all organizations. The, again, the large legacy ones struggle with this because they don't have the flexibility. Remember I said you've got to be led by your customers, led by your society, then break down your thing, and it's, it's open. It's a very open area. Tony? I have nothing to do with it. I fully agree with that. I think that, again, this is a, a, a silos develop out of an organisation because of an organisational need and a particular structure. Uh, and let's try and keep focused on very narrow deliverables uh, in a highly organised organisation. It's also, it also worked well when those silos could operate more or less sort of autonomously in a world that didn't move quite so fast. I think what we've got now are unexpected issues and, and problems and challenges, as well as opportunities that if they only remain in that one silo, they don't get addressed properly. So I think uh, we, need to be, we need to be conscious of the fact that uh, it's focused delivery on certain key deliverables that come out of silos will always remain as part of a, a job description and a, a part of an enterprise structure. But if you want to be able to achieve a certain amount of speed and momentum and cadence in an organization that responds to challenges and opportunities. You can't have silos that are too rigid. If I, if I can just take that one stage further, we've got um, one of the people that is uh, attending here today, uh, Matt, um, there's a technology we're working with. Um, and why we're working with it is that it empowers the frontline workers to get on with doing their own thing. And they don't need silos you just get let them get on and build backwards from that rather than downwards from a silo i think it's really important to have that ability of empowerment and then flexibility behind it and it works well i mean it really does work well you do need systems and processes but you know the answer is is that people don't like silos they just emulate them because that's what has been uh, historical or traditional but when you break them down they're very very comfortable Right. So then the next question uh, from, from Paul, 
Uh, and Tony, you should probably start, start off on this one. Uh, how, how do you see the role of government in facilitating transformation? Uh, and interesting, Paul's background here, speaking as someone who's very involved with the Singaporean government, uh, out of, it's interesting because out of, out of my class, three of the brightest people in my class were all sponsored by the Singapore government to go to Stanford, uh, and I caught up with them recently, and they're all heavily involved in managing the Singapore's government tech entrepreneurship. So they've, they've definitely got it, got it going well, but, yeah, in Australia we have Tony advising. So uh, uh, you're, very, you're very, well, uh, very well set up to answer this question, Tony. Boy, what a way to start. <laughs> so let, let me see if I can, I can take a slight step back from that. Different governments around the world uh, are really there to try to help create things like industry policy or make up for or otherwise smooth out the bumps, uh, make up for gaps and smooth out the bumps where there's, let's say, market failure or industry failure or some other thing to try and create an environment where growth takes place. Uh, and to a certain extent, and, and certainly, it, you know, if we think about our old home here, you know, government and entrepreneurship, you know, they almost, you would think that they would occupy, you know, different ends of the spectrum. Now, that's not true, though. So when we look at one of the arguments like product slash entrepreneurial breakthroughs the world has ever seen, which was the creation of the iPhone, right? 2007, every single technology, everyone that was in that original iPhone came out of a government-sponsored technology project, okay? So what happens is government can come in and actually put money in when it's not expecting to provide a return on investment within short periods of time. Whereas, generally speaking, and, and correctly so, whenever we're looking uh, as investors or as managers of entrepreneurial businesses, you know, we're looking to try to identify where the ROI is going to be and when the payback is going to be and all of those normal uh, disciplined financial measures. The government can intervene or can actually provide the capacity to add additional resource and capacity and momentum uh, when otherwise it would not normally occur from with a, a normal market environment. Okay? And industry develops off the back of government investment. And so under the circumstances, I think that government can play a role in facilitating, encouraging the development of an ecosystem or creating a support or advancing the the pace that which the ecosystem actually works. It's uh, there, there's a strong philosophical argument also within government saying we don't want to pick winners, right? so people don't want to be blamed for having made a bad decision. On the other hand, that's almost an unavoidable thing because at some particular point in time you have to decide which industries you think need to be prioritised if in fact you're going to build capability. So it's a complicated uh, complicated question in terms of saying, you know, what is the role in, of government in facilitating transformation? Because I think large organisations have got to feel that when they engage in practices that might otherwise be risky, the government uh, as part of the regulating organisations will support them, will send a signal that the sort of behaviours that you are trying to engage in 
in transformation are approved behaviors. It's, you know, this is something that Adam and I talked about in preparation for this discussion. Um, the fact that in Australia, like currently, we have chapter 11 type provisions for trading while, in, while insolvent basically enables organizations that are struggling uh, to you know, continue to work through, their, uh, work through their challenges, which is, has proven to be a really effective mechanism. If you punish people who fail, right, if you uh, make it so that failure is personalized to the individual, well, the answer is that person doesn't come back uh, and that any, uh, you get massive expansions of risk-averse behavior. Now's not the time to have you know, lots of risk-averse behavior when you're really having to engage in a lot of commercial experimentation. So the organization, uh, the institutionalization, institutionalized response that comes out of government that says this type of failure, good failure is good, is an essential element as part of the narrative uh, to say transformation efforts are an improved behavior and even if they don't always work, in aggregate, we're all better off for having engaged and fired up a whole industry to respond in that way. I can just make a quick comment on the Singapore government versus the Australian government. <clears throat> so I've worked with all of government in Singapore. And the Singapore government, the actual bureaucracies, have a purpose, which there doesn't seem to be the same purpose in Australia. They are there to make Singaporeans better off. And it is a driving side that allows a lot more um, innovation to flow through. Um, so I think that we're moving in the right direction and COVID has, has uh, definitely accelerated that. Uh, but I still meet pockets where um, the bureaucracy is stuck. Um, so I think that the uh, industry areas are definitely progressing and, and becoming more flexible and stronger, absolutely. But whole of government, I think, is still running behind. Sure, Singapore is smaller, but there are things we can learn. But it's not just Singapore. There's other, other government agencies where people uh, see that government has got to get its act together. Um, and we're not seeing that yet uh, flowing through the Australian bureaucracies. Thanks. Uh, we might we might go to one in the chat now from from Bernie. The uh, the shortage of supply of board and executive level transformation leaders. Please discuss. <laughs> Another challenge from you, Adam. <laughs> it's like being at university. Please discuss. <laughs> what it is 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 the surrounding people in a transformational environment need to understand the transformation. They don't need to lead it. So. For example, Carl Lodes, who's the current chairman of OzTTA, when he's chairing a board, he takes his board over to Silicon Valley and gives them the experience of seeing life differently. They may not be transformational, but they're learning. He's a transformational chair. They're learning how to operate within him because you've got to bring people with you. So you don't need everybody to be transformational. You need to be able to let them understand and participate. But the leadership, key leadership, needs to be transformational to operate at the speed and the jumps required and manage that, that side. The Australian uh, boards, established boards by and large, are very much into uh, risk aversion and risk avoidance. And that's why I say we have best practices with the um, uh, private equity boards. Look at any private equity board and see the energy that's in, embedded in there. So 
depends on where it is, uh, Bernie, but I do think there are significant shortages in this area. And that's one of the things we're trying to address with Whitewater is how do we find people that may not be uh, have led transformations uh, before they've done it inside a company. How do we lift them out and bring them in as a, a, a mentor, coach, interim management environment to help companies? Because once a company has started this journey and the, and the, and it's baked in place and the um, you've got the tools, actually that company keeps going because it can even survive losing the CEO, even survive those things once it gets going. So it's the getting it going, getting the infrastructure, then it's right. So yes, there are shortages. Um, the big thing to note is that a lot of people coming out of digital disruption can't necessarily lead operational transformation because they're different beasts. And there's a lot of confusion. Ah, you've led putting in the ERP system there, lead the change of business model. And the difference is an IT environment is these are the problem areas. Here's my list. I've got to go through and I tick them all up off and then we get we have it finished. An operational environment is you've got a list of things and you walk in the next day and that just blows up in your face and you've got to start again. They're quite different skill sets required. Um, but you don't need many. So Bernie, you only need the few people that are there and then a lot of communication and compassion and love to take the other people on the journey. We've probably only got time for, for one more question. Um, David's asked a few, so we might, we might just go to, Sabine's just asked one here, which is how can we transform a risk adverse board to embrace innovation? <laughs> Sorry, Sabine. Change the board have, members, by the sounds of things. <laughs> if you have a chair that is able to do it, then yes, you can do it. One of the things that saddens me is when you see transformational leaders go on to non-executive roles where they can't contribute. And a lot of times that's very sad to see that. So if you've got the right leadership, you can lift up the board and take it down there. You need strong leadership. But uh, if you don't have that, then sorry, Sabine, the answer's no. Yeah, we've just got a few minutes left. So we might, we might just maybe, maybe just uh, one, one or two statements from, from each of you, just, just to close off with, whether there's anything you, you would like to, to, to leave our, 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 our listeners with. Adam, anything you'd like to leave people with? Yeah, have fun. It's such an exciting time. It really is. You can dream. You can dream and you can achieve dreams. It is, it is a time of such excitement. And if you're locked into an organization that is locked into its rigidness and sit there, maybe it's time to go and find one that allows you to fly. And as you fly, remember, you've got to have your feet on the ground as well as flying. You've got to have the roots and the do that which is make sure that you deliver the business as usual and then fly but enjoy it it is the next five six years are going to be extremely difficult for a lot of people but for entrepreneurs and leaders it's very exciting that's great tony hang on you're on mute haha had, had to get had to get someone at some point <laughs> i can tick off the bingo box uh, look i was going to say something very similar which was you know the effect of, of great technology sometimes it creates magic and if you just look at what we're using at the moment and compare what this sort of thing would have been like 15 20 years ago this would not have been possible and so i think it comes down to our our collective and individual imaginations about how we can transform how we can leverage the the magic that these new technologies can provide and the speed at which change is occurring 
to actually bring them to big markets and to create new things. Uh, we've never had an opportunity like what we have currently. But I think you cannot underestimate the power that, that uh, is now embedded around us in communities that are saying they're changing the way they want to live their lives. They're actually re-evaluating what's important and the resistance to change has never been lower. And that's the best set of circumstances you can possibly have uh, as an entrepreneur, as an innovator, because your better thing has less resistance in terms of penetrating a market. So now is the time to experiment and to try things. Great, a great way to end. So thank you very much, uh, uh, Tony uh, and Adam, for your presentation today. That's been, been very informative. It's a, it's a great topic, a, a great time to be optimistic about the future, uh, although there are plenty of challenges. I uh, would also like to thank Westpac for sponsoring the, uh, the, the Entrepreneur Series, and I'd like to thank everyone who's attended today, all the participants, uh, it's been it's been great to have you have have you be part of this session. Uh, we had a great Q and A session. I didn't even have to uh, call, call call into the Dorothy Dixes there. So thank you for that great engagement. And uh, as always, there are there are more Stanford events coming up. There's one in a couple of days' time. So if you're on the if you're not on the list, uh, get on the list or just go to uh, uh, Stanford Australia Association. You should be able to find the details there. Uh, anyway, thanks everyone, and have a great day. Bye now.